Our scripture text for today's sermon comes from Leviticus 16. That's right. Leviticus. As uh, Philip has joked, Leviticus is where Bible reading plans go to die. <laughs> it's because so much of this book is foreign to us. It's so detailed. It's so complicated. And yet, I want you to understand that we can't really know who Jesus is or what he accomplished apart from Leviticus. And so I want you to listen to this gospel of God pictured for you in his appointment of a day of atonement. And let's pray together that in these lines of black and white, we see the beauty and the grace of Jesus, who is the substance behind these shadows. Would you pray with me? O Lord God, who inhabits eternity, the heavens declare your glory, the earth your riches. The universe is your temple. Your presence fills immensity, and yet you have of your pleasure created life and communicated happiness to us. You have made us what we are. You have given us what we have. In you we live and move and have our being we thank you for your riches to us in Jesus, for the unclouded revelation of him in your word, where we behold his person, character, grace, glory, humiliation, sufferings, death, and resurrection. Father, cause us to feel our need of his continual presence among us. Amen. Leviticus 16. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd as a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and have, shall have the linen undergarment on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself and he shall take a censer full of coals a fire from the altar before the Lord, and two handfuls of sweet incense, beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil. 
and put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony, so that he does not die. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. And in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the bull with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall do for the tent of meeting And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleannesses. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the bull, some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat And put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleannesses of the people of Israel. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and shall take off the linen garments and he, that, that he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. And he shall bathe his his body in water in a holy place and put on his garments and come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. And the fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar. And he who let the goat go to Azazel shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water and afterward he may come into the camp. And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire. And he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterwards he may come into the camp. And it shall be a statute to you forever. That in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourself. And shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you, to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you, to you. And you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement. Wearing the holy linen garments, he shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you, 
that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him. This is the word of the Lord. Have you ever noticed that we want to be close to what we love? We love our families, and so we get bummed out when somebody can't make it to Thanksgiving. People who love fame wait for hours to get close for a selfie with a celebrity. From my childhood cartoons, I can close my eyes and picture Scrooge McDuck diving into his vast pool of gold coins because he loved being with his wealth. We may value very different things, but we all want to be close to what we value. So I want you to remember, and I want it to strike you, to remember that the purpose of Israel's exodus from Egypt, the reason why God rescued His people, is so that God can be close to His people. When we think about the exodus, we think about the ten plagues and the Red Sea parting. We think about Israel coming to Mount Sinai and the smoke and the thunder and the lightning and the trumpets as God gave His people the Ten Commandments, as He established His covenant with them. But in one sense, all of that was leading to what came next, because after the Exodus, after the Ten Commandments, God gave Moses instructions about building the tabernacle. He literally told Moses to make a big kingly tent that would be set smack in the middle of the camp because God was coming to live with His people. God loves His people, and He wants to be with them. We saw it in the beginning in Genesis when God walked in the garden in the cool of the day looking for Adam. And we see it in the end of the story, too. We're told He will be with us in the end because John the Revelator heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. From the beginning to the end of this story, we see our King's relentless purpose to be close to His people. And the more that we come to know Him, the more we long to be near Him. The Israelites of the Exodus were coming to know God intimately, and that longing was growing in them too. Because through Moses they heard how their good God created the good heavens and the good earth. They heard God promise His rebellious children that a rescuer would come through the woman. They heard how God had called Abraham an unlikely choice if there ever was one. God called Abraham promising that from his family the rescuer would come to bless all the families of the earth. Moses told Israel how the Lord had remembered His covenant with Abraham when He heard them groaning in slavery. And these people, with their own eyes, had seen God's power and glory on display when He rescued them from Egypt. To them, God had revealed Himself as the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger 
and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and knowing Him, the faithful longed to be close to their God. They were made to be close to Him. And God had redeemed them for that very purpose, so that He and His people could live together once again. Do you want to be close to this God? You too were made to be close to this one, to enjoy intimate fellowship with this one that Augustine calls the best of all beings. And when we see God as He is, not as we imagine Him, but by His Word, knowing His character and sensing His glory, knowing Him, we rightly long to enjoy His presence because we always want to be close to what we love. But in our longing, we are confronted with a problem. Because the more we know the character of God, that He is as perfect in His holiness as He is in His graciousness, the more we will recognize that the holy presence of God is a dangerous place to be. It's like this. If you were looking for a quick way to die in the ancient world, approaching a king uninvited was a surefire way of doing it. Like the Persian king, if you remember the story of Esther, the law said death would meet the person who entered the king's presence without the royal scepter raised in acceptance. And so approaching a king uninvited is risky business at best. But what about the one who defiled a king's palace? What about somebody who not only barged into the king's presence, but dishonored the king in his own house? What about somebody who comes in to the king and metaphorically dumps a wheelbarrow of cow stuff on his rug? You understand that's essentially what just happened in Israel's story. And it sets the context for chapter 16. God's people saw his dangerous holiness when Aaron's two sons died, approaching the Lord in his tabernacle. Back in chapter 10, they had tried to approach God on their own terms, tried to barge their way into his presence. And the reason for their death is underscored by what the Lord said afterwards in verse 3. In, sorry, in 10.3. He says, Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And this tells us something about the nature of what the Bible calls sin. Sin is fundamentally a failure to act in light of God's holiness. His majestic otherness. It's doing that which treats God as less than holy, holy, holy. It's failing to treat God with the glory, literally the weight that He deserves. And so whatever it is that I think or feel or do that functionally treats God like He's lightweight, insignificant, forgettable, whether it's doing what he says is wrong 
or just trying to get close to him on my own terms. It's all sin. And sin isn't a small thing to God. If it's small to me, then I can only say that I have not yet understood the immensity of his holiness. And so you and I have to come to see sin not as a few foibles or mistakes that break some arbitrary rules. We have to come to see sin as God sees it, as something that is deeply offensive to him, corrupting everything that it touches. In the context of Leviticus, it corrupts not only the people of God, but the place of God, the palace of God where he lives with his people. And the impurity of sin, whether it's accidental or willfully present in our lives, it necessarily separates us, bars us from enjoying the presence of the best of all beings. And so here, with the death of Aaron's sons forming the opening context of chapter 16, we are reminded that no matter how Earnestly, we want to be close to God. Our sin, our lack of holiness, bar, from us, bar us from enjoying His presence. And unless sin is removed, unless that impurity is cleansed, His presence will remain lethal to us. But that heavy truth actually prepares us for the grace of chapter 16, because here we learn, as one writer puts it, that the holy God who is offended by sin and impurity is also the compassionate and gracious God who delights in cleansing and forgiving it. God himself here provides the solution for how a holy God can live with an unholy people. And while there are lots of rituals, lots of sacrifices in Leviticus, this one is unique. It's the Day of Atonement. To atone means to cover over, to cleanse away. And on this one day, God was making a way of doing what the people couldn't do themselves. He would cleanse both His palace and His people from their sin, leading them into the joy-filled assurance that God would not let their sin separate them from Him. So we don't have time to go into a great deal of detail this morning. And maybe you're breathing a sigh of relief. But let me point out three main parts that form the heart of this ritual. First, there are the purifications to cleanse the Lord's home. Second, there is a way to get the lethal sin away from the people, away from the camp. And then third, there were burnt offerings underscoring the atonement that had already taken place. So first, purifications to cleanse the Lord's home. Look at verses 11 to 19. In these, we see the need, we hear the need for purification offerings to cleanse the Lord's home. Because if the sins of the people and the priests themselves were, as one writer notes, rebellion against the Lord's kingly rule. And if their impurities were incompatible with His holy rule, then it would make sense then, wouldn't it? That the sins and impurities were thought to defile the very object that represented that rule, namely the tabernacle itself. 
and the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat on top. It's important to note in verse 11 how Aaron has to deal not only with the sins of the people, but Aaron first has to make atonement for himself and for his house, it says. And it's emphasized that this is the only way that he's going to survive the presence of God and actually be able to do his job to make atonement for the people that he's representing. And so through the sacrifices of the bull and that first goat, you can talk with me later about Azazel and possible meanings of of what that is all about. Through the sacrifice of the bull and the first goat, their blood being sprinkled throughout the tabernacle, God's whole house would be cleansed from the sin and the impurity of his people. The valuable lives of the animals would be given to make atonement for God's treasured people. But why was that necessary, you might be wondering. Why didn't other sacrifices make atonement for sins? What is special about this day? Well, yes, it's true that there were other sacrifices that dealt with the sins of the people. But consider this. What if a person didn't realize that they had sinned, and so they didn't offer the sacrifice? What if there was actually some sin that they were blind to in their own life? Or what if a person had sinned intentionally? Throughout the book of of Leviticus, there is no sacrifice for rebellious sins. But here, in verse 16, on this special day, this once-a-year day, we hear God saying, this day is to make atonement because of all their transgressions, all their sins. All their sins. God providing this day of atonement is almost as if he's telling his people, you need a covering, a cleansing that is full enough to deal with the sins that you don't even know about. And I'm giving it to you. And as for you rebels who have willfully, stubbornly disobeyed me, you need to see that I'm offering even you the hope of atonement. Now, of course, such atonement could only benefit a repentant heart, one that understands the wrongness of rebellion. But the grace of the Lord's offer here is profound for all His people. He is opening a way. He is making the way for them to stay together, for them to live together. But notice how the first part of the whole ritual happened inside the bounds of the tabernacle, almost completely hidden away from the people. The priests, the high priests went where they couldn't go to do the work that they couldn't do. But when he reappeared to them, to the great joy of the people, then the second main part of the ritual would take place. In verse 20, we see the second main part. We hear how Aaron was to lay his hands on the head of the second goat and confess, confess all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. 
with that confession, that honesty, that live goat would be sent away from the camp into the wilderness, as it were, bearing the lethal burdens of their sins and carrying them far away, never to be seen again. Not only was God going to cleanse his home, his palace, he was cleansing his people and he was cleansing their camp, removing that defilement. Nothing was going to stop them from being together. And it strikes me that it's a gracious thing that God gave his people such a visible sign of what had been done inside the tabernacle, hidden from view. Can you imagine the comfort that an Israelite would have felt seeing that goat with all their sins on its head go away? I wonder if they cried, or if they smiled, or if they sang, or if they did all three as they watched their sins disappear out of sight. I wonder if this vision, this moment, formed David's words in Psalm 103. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. Finally, in verses 23 to 24, we see the final element of the Day of Atonement. After the goat is gone from sight, Aaron washes and he changes back into his normal priestly clothes. The requirement for an additional element of holiness is now removed and he moves back into his ordinary state. And he offers burnt offerings. It says to make atonement for himself and for the people. As one writer suggests, underscoring the atonement that has already been made. And so with no small thanksgiving in his heart, he offers sacrifices to the Lord, worshiping him for his gracious provision for his people. Because now, now there's nothing between God and his people. The slate is clean because the people are clean and God's place is clean. <clears throat> now God can continue living among his people the way that they were meant to enjoying their life together. And this life together is really what it was all about. <coughs> 200 years before Christ, a scribe named Joshua ben Sirah was in Jerusalem for the Day of Atonement. With a massive crowd, he watched eagerly for his high priest to reappear for making atonement for the Holy of Holies. This is what he remembered on the moment when he saw him come out. How glorious he was when the people gathered round him as he came out of the inner sanctuary. Like the morning star among the clouds, like the moon when it is full, like the sun shining upon the temple of the Most High, and like the rainbow gleaming in glorious clouds like roses in the days of the first fruits, like lilies by a spring of water, like a green shoot on Lebanon on a summer day, like fire and incense in the censer, like a vessel of 
hammered gold adorned with all kinds of precious stones. <coughs> like an olive tree putting forth its fruits and like a cypress towering in the clouds. What joy when he saw his priest, when he believed that God's mercy and his forgiveness <coughs> had been freely given to him. What relief, what humble thanks must he have given to God who accepted the death of a sacrifice so that he could live. Like a child safe from fear in his father's arms, he could rest. Joshua could rest. <clears throat> and God's promise that atonement had been made. Resting and receiving the Lord's grace by faith, his sins were removed. And his life with the best of all beings, his faithful God, could continue. There's so much grace pictured for us in this day of atonement. And yet, did you catch how this day is lacking? There's at least two ways. First, only one man out of all of God's people could actually enter into God's presence. And even he could only stay for a moment, once a year. That's a far cry from... God and man dwelling together like before in the garden in the cool of the day. A broader, lasting closeness is still out of reach here. And second, verse 29 shows us that this ritual would need to be repeated, repeated, repeated in perpetuity. Year after year it would happen again because year after year the sins of the people piled up again. And you can almost hear the saints of the Old Testament crying out, How long, O Lord? How long until full, lasting reconciliation is made between you and us? And in this passage in Leviticus 16, there is no answer. Though we, like them, we see our need for atonement from all the ways that we have treated God as light and insignificant, there is no final Lasting cleansing here. But in the fullness of time, God sent His Son. And in the Son, God speaks to us today of a better atonement. A once-for-all cleansing that has opened the way not only for forgiveness, but of closeness between God and His people. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the substance casting the shadow in the Day of Atonement. What was then pictured for us, albeit incompletely, is accomplished fully by Him. Jesus is the better priest who had no sin of His own to deal with before He could draw close to God. He is the one who entered not an earthly tent, but the true holy place in heaven to appear before God on behalf of His people, you and me. Oh, He's the faithful one. He came before God not to reconcile Himself to God, but to reconcile us to the Father. Not bringing the blood of bulls and goats, but His own precious blood. And with that blood that was shed on the cross for us, He has cleansed both God's heavenly palace and us, His people. 
You and I, so often, we feel the weight of sin. It makes us feel dirty still, doesn't it? And when we fix our eyes on sin, sometimes our instinct is still to hide, just like our first parents in the garden. Maybe sin makes you want to run away from God, to hide from Him. Maybe you want to run away from Him, not to Him. And maybe, maybe even this week you have despaired of ever being able to please God and you feel distant from Him. I have good news for you. You're even worse off than you can possibly imagine. But God loves you and He is more committed to being with you than you yet know. His calling to you is to receive Jesus, whether for the first time or for the 10,000th time, to embrace Him, loving Him and His grace-filled work. To you who wants to hide, the Lord says in Jesus, the way home is open. Or maybe you've been trying to cleanse yourself, clean yourself up for God, trying harder than ever to please Him. And maybe that's actually left you feeling angry at Him because nothing ever seems to be enough. Friend, you need to know for certain that nothing you do will ever be enough. But take heart because Christ has already done it all. You need to rest in Him, rely on Him. You need to repent of trying so hard apart from Christ. And you need to embrace what God has provided for you, the one He has provided for you. Because although Jesus is, He is more than enough for anyone, His cleansing work is only effectual when it's received by faith. And yet the gospel of our Lord gives us good ground for that faith, assuring us that Jesus is our true priest. He is the better blood that's offered. He is both the goat that was slain and the goat sent away, carrying our sins out of sight forever. Full atonement. Can it be? Hallelujah. What a Savior. That's why God calls us to fix our eyes, not on our sin, but on the Savior Himself. To fix our eyes on Jesus, eagerly looking to Him in faith. Because if the Day of Atonement was enough for the people of Israel to live in hope of another year with God, then how much more is Christ enough for us? By means of His own blood, Hebrews says, He has secured an eternal redemption. And by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He has opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us... Draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast this confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting meeting together as is the habit of some 
but encouraging each other, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray. Father, you have made us for yourself. And in Christ, you came to redeem us back to yourself when we had wandered and rebelled against you. We praise you, O God, for your mercy, for your grace toward us in Christ. And we praise you, O Christ, for willingly becoming our sacrifice, willingly serving as our priest in your death and now in your resurrection life. We praise you, O Spirit, for giving us life in Jesus, uniting us to Him through the gift of faith. And now, triune God, help us, we pray, to live as becomes followers of Christ, to go to Him who suffered outside the camp for our sanctification, and to bear the reproach that He endured while offering up praises to You. Amen.